If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 10, and uh, you can find a seat this morning. Joshua chapter 10 is where we're going to be. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. And we would love to gift that Bible to you. And you can take that home with you today. Most of the verses will be on the screen as well. Joshua chapter 10 is where we're going to be. And we're going to start reading here in verse number 12. We've been in a series uh, that we're calling Built to be Brave. And we're talking about spiritual courage. And uh, we know that spiritual courage is something that's so desperately needed in the world in which we're living. And so uh, we're talking about uh, this subject from the book of Joshua. And we're going to start reading in verse number 12. If you are ready to dive into God's word today, would you say amen? amen? Verse number 12, the Bible says this. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Today, I'd like to speak about having the faith to let God fight. Having faith to let God fight. Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. God, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to look to your word and to study and to grow. Lord, I pray that we would look to this text with a fresh perspective. God, I pray that we would understand that we can have faith to uh, let you fight, to trust you. And Lord, I'm so thankful today for those that have already accepted you uh, as their Savior. God, we're so thankful that you are still saving and doing uh, the miraculous in our midst. And Lord, I pray that in the next few minutes, we'll be able to look to your word and find encouragement. Lord, I pray that we would also find conviction and that you would challenge us and sharpen us in those areas that we need to be sharpened. And we love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said this morning, how many of you have ever been in a petty argument? Can I see your hands? You've been in a petty argument. How many of you were in a petty argument this morning on the way to church? Anybody like that? Wow, I see a few hands this morning. I was reading recently about some neighbors that were arguing about uh, some petty things. And uh, I brought a couple of pictures to show this morning. The first one is they were arguing on their Wi-Fi uh, signal and uh, their name. And they said, your music is annoying. And the other person said, your grammar is more annoying. And they put the apostrophe in the wrong spot. And so they were kind of just battling over their Wi-Fi name. Uh, the, the next picture is of a car in a parking spot. And it's a toy car. This is at an apartment complex. They're paying for one spot, but they didn't need it for their car. But they were getting irritated that people were parking in that spot. And so they parked a toy car there and put a sign on it that says, do not remove. We're paying for this spot. We're going to use it even with a toy car. And uh, the next one is of, is of uh, Christmas lights uh, during the Christmas season. And one neighbor was so tired of competing with their neighbor that they just put up an arrow with lights and said, just look over to our neighbor's house. We were tired of fighting. We're tired of the competition. You win. That was a surrender. You know, 
as I was thinking on these things this week, uh, I believe that the reality for all of us today is that we live in a world where it's very easy to find conflict. Uh, have you noticed that today, that everywhere that we look, we can find conflict, we can find struggle, we can find fighting and battling. And so often we are fighting uh, for things that don't really matter. Now, there are things in life that we should be fighting for. Uh, I want to encourage you today that you should fight for your marriage, that you should fight for your children, that you should fight for the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word. But often we are just fighting in our flesh about trivial things that don't really matter in all of eternity. But when it comes to the fights that we will face in life and the battles that we engage in, uh, the Bible has so many encouraging uh, verses that I believe we can apply to our lives. Uh, God said to King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 17, he said this, you shall not need to fight in this battle. Now, this is encouraging because God says to Jehoshaphat, hey, when it comes to this battle, you don't need to fight. Set yourselves, he says, get in the right position. Stand you still and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. I don't know about you, but I find encouragement in that verse that we don't have to live in fear, that we don't have to live in discouragement, that we don't have to live overwhelmed because the God that we worship goes before us and he is always willing to fight on behalf of his people. Uh, the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse number four, for the Lord your God is he that goes with you to fight, here it is, for you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And see, we spend so much of our lives wrestling and struggling and fighting and, try and trying and in turmoil. Meanwhile, we forget that our God is a mighty warrior that longs to fight on behalf of his people. Now, now this reality that God fights for us is a beautiful and wonderful picture of his grace that is displayed for us. I'm so thankful for the grace of God because, see, religion will tell you, go ahead and keep on fighting. Go ahead and keep on striving. Go ahead and keep on trying. Go ahead and try to measure up. Go ahead and try to perform. Go ahead and try to be the best person that you can possibly be. Uh, go ahead and keep on fighting. But the gospel says that we can stop fighting and we can start trusting in the one who has called us and saved us and called us with a holy calling. The only question today is, will we have the faith to let God fight? Uh, will we have the faith to trust uh, in the Lord and, and, and lean not to our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge him, allowing him to direct our paths? Now, Joshua chapter 10 really is a passage of faith. Uh, is everybody with me this morning? Really, this is a section of scripture on faith. And I believe it's so important that we should uh, learn about this subject of faith because the Bible has so much to say about faith. Faith is something, even in our culture today, where a lot of people know how to talk about it but rarely do they deploy it. Uh, faith is one of those things that's easier to verbalize than to exercise. It's one of those things, uh, one of those things in life that we can talk about, uh, but we're not actually putting into action. Uh, the Bible says in Psalm 20, verse number seven, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. See, sometimes the problem is not that we're missing faith. The problem is that we have misdirected our faith. 
Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. Some trust in their bank account. Some trust in a relationship. Some trust in their education. Some trust in their experience. Some trust in a politician. Some trust in the government. But there ought to be some people today at the 1130 service that say, you know what? Some can trust in horses and some can trust in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And at the end of the day, my hope is not in a politician or in some relationship or in my own intuition. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Uh, our hope is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so today, uh, so many people have a misdirected faith. They're trusting in all the wrong areas. And we come to Joshua chapter 10, and this is a beautiful chapter where God is fighting on behalf of his people. And Joshua here and the children of Israel, they demonstrate the kind of faith to allow God to fight on their behalf. And today what I'd like to do is I'd like to just give us three very simple principles from Joshua chapter 10. And so if you want to jot a couple of these things down, if you want to take some notes, I would encourage you to do that. But I believe that these principles can help us deploy our faith uh, in our lives. Number one is this, if you're taking notes, great adversity often leads to great opportunity. Now, this might sound like a cliche, polished Christian statement, but I want you to know before we go any further that it is absolutely true. That all throughout scripture, we see that where there is adversity, there will always be opportunity. And here in Joshua chapter 10, verse number one, we're gonna see this adversity forming and how God used this adversity to bring about a great opportunity. Now, notice it in verse number one. If you're with me today, would you say amen? amen. Now, it came to pass, verse number one, when Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem. How many of you are thankful today that your name is not Adonizedek, okay? And Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem. This is the first time that Jerusalem is mentioned in scripture. King Adonizedek heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and her king. So he had done to Ai and her king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. Now, we're going to talk about what this king was doing in a moment. But before we go any further, I think it's interesting that King Adonizedek had a good name that had a good definition and meaning. Uh, Adonizedek meant this, Lord of Righteousness. Which is fascinating because this king was an ungodly and wicked king that did not worship the one true Lord and, uh, one true Lord and king. And yet his name uh, meant Lord of righteousness or Lord of, uh, of justice. And so he had this name that did not align with his nature. He, he had this calling that did not align with his character. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, so often in scripture we are given names and we are called something by the Lord. Did you know that in scripture we are called his children? That we are called the children of God. Did you know that the Bible says in Corinthians that we are ambassadors for Christ? That we are called his representatives? That we are called a chosen generation? Uh, that we are called a royal priesthood? Uh, see, we are called these things, but the question is, does our character align with our calling? Does our name align with our nature? Uh, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, verse number 1, Jesus was writing, to the church at Sardis, and he said, These things saith he with the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. So you have a name and a reputation that you are alive, but the heart of the matter and the truth of the matter is that you are dead. See, many people tragically claim Christianity in name only. They are professing something that they are not practicing. And here Adonizedek has this good name, but he had ungodly character. And what he does here in chapter number one is he starts to form an alliance of other kings to kind of help join in his cause. And I want you to see how he does it in verse number two. It says this, 
And they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities. So this city of Gibeon was a special city. And because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. So these mighty men of Gibeon, wherefore Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Param, king of Jarmuth, and unto Japhiah, king of Lachish, and unto Deber, the king of Eglon, saying. And so he goes and he talks to these four different kings, and he says, hey, I want you to come over with me. Verse number four, specifically, he says, come up unto me and help me. Now, Adonizedek says, I need you to help me that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and the children of Israel. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, in chapter 9 of Joshua, we learn that the Gibeonites, they tricked and deceived Joshua. Uh, they heard about how Yahweh was uh, bringing great victory to the Israelites. And so uh, they, the Gibeonites thought, man, we don't want to be destroyed like that. And so they went to Joshua and they said, hey, we're just traveling from an, a far country. And they put on some really old clothes and they looked, put dirt all over themselves and looked like they were traveling a long time. And, and uh, they tricked Joshua into thinking that they were just travelers and they weren't actually uh, inhabitants of Canaan. And it says, this in Joshua chapter 9 verse number 6 and they went to Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal and said unto him this was the Gibeonites they said unto him and to the men of Israel we become from a far country now therefore make ye a league with us uh, Joshua we're from a far country don't destroy us will you make an alliance and a league with us now Joshua knew that he shouldn't make an alliance with any of the wicked inhabitants of Canaan. God told him not to make an unholy alliance like this. But because Joshua is deceived and because he thinks they're just travelers, Joshua makes this alliance. By the way, can I tell you in life, be very careful with whom you make an alliance. Uh, be very careful in your life with whom you make a league and a close friendship because nearness is likeness. And Joshua here, he makes this alliance and he makes this league with Gibeon because he was lacking discernment. And now in chapter number 10, Joshua is suffering the consequences of that decision of Joshua chapter 9. Is everybody tracking with me today? He's experiencing those consequences. Uh, I, I uh, remember a couple years ago, this was about three years ago, my youngest daughter, Blakely, she was learning about consequences. And we were teaching her about this, and uh, uh, she was explaining it to her grandpa. And we have a video this morning that he caught of Blakely talking about consequences. Is there? Consequences. What? Consequences. Consequences? Yeah. What's that mean? No, that you do something bad. And then what happens? You got consequences. Consequences. All right. You got a consequence, right? She was learning about what, what that meant. Uh, you get a consequence. Something bad will happen, right? And uh, I'm thankful today that when we make a mistake, when we fall, that the mercy of God is always available. I'm thankful that the grace of God is always available. I'm thankful that the forgiveness of God is always available. But we also have to recognize that we will still, still deal with the consequences of our choices. And God was going to show his mercy, his grace. He was going to fight on behalf of Joshua, but he still had to battle the consequences here in this moment and deal with Gibeon. Now, Adonizedek says, hey, let's get these kings together. Let's go and attack Gibeon and, and Israel because they have made this alliance. Now, notice verse number five. It says this, therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and they went up. They and all their hosts and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And so all these five kings gathered together. They have these five nations that are going to battle and go to war and attack Joshua. Now, Joshua was accustomed to fighting one city at a time. He was accustomed to fighting one battle at a time. I'll battle Jericho and then I'll battle Ai. But now he has 
five nations to deal with, that they all coalesce together. They form this alliance, and they are attacking Joshua. Sometimes in life, we fight one battle at a time. Maybe we are struggling in a certain relationship, and we're trying to get victory in that area. Uh, sometimes we are struggling with one child and we are praying that the Lord would, would help us raise up that child in the way that they should go. Sometimes we're struggling in our finances. But have you noticed there are certain times in life when your problems have a way of coalescing themselves together and you are fighting multiple battles at once? Can anybody relate with that? Sometimes you're struggling financially and relationally and physically and, and your problems are coming from all different directions. And now Joshua is battling the greatest battle of his life. This is the biggest battle. These are the greatest enemies that have come against him. But can I let you in on a little secret today at the 1130 service? Anybody interested in what this secret is? It wasn't actually Adonizedek that brought these kings together. It was actually the Lord that brought these kings together. And what God was doing is bringing about an advantage even in the midst of this adversity. You say, well, why would God allow these five kings to come together to attack Joshua? Because now, instead of Joshua having to fight each of these nations on their own, each of these cities on their own, one at a time, now God is going to allow them to experience the victory all at one time. That, that God was about to demonstrate his power for them in a great and wonderful way. Can I tell you today that when your problems start to stack up and when your problems start to get larger and larger and larger, that is simply a greater opportunity for God to showcase his power in your life, to showcase how big and how strong he is, because the Bible still says that there is nothing too hard for our God. And so what happens is these nations come together, but God says, I'm going to deliver you a victory all at once. That's the kind of God that we worship. He can kill five birds with one stone. He says, hey, let's bring them all together and let's secure this victory all at once. And so what looked like an adversity God was using for an opportunity in his grace. Uh, the Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 9. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so God's grace was uh, being evident in this situation. Now, no notice verse number 6. If you're still with me today, would you say amen? amen. Verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua... To the camp at Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and, watch this, save us and help us. For the king of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Joshua, even though he shouldn't have made that alliance, he was a man of his word, and so he honored uh, his word, and he went to help them. But what the Gibeonites do here is a perfect picture and demonstration of how one will experience salvation. Did you notice how they cried out, save us? They knew that they were headed for destruction. They knew when King Adonizedek uh, got these other four kings together and they, they were going to attack them, they knew they were headed for destruction. They knew they needed protection. And so what they did was they went to Joshua and they said, help us, save us. And see, this is a picture of salvation. First, it begins with recognizing our need for a Savior, uh, recognizing that we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God, and apart from God's grace, apart from his forgiveness, that we too are headed for destruction. And just like the Gibeonites went to Joshua and said, save us, we can go to our true and better Joshua, our true and better Yeshua. His name is Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful today to tell you that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is how one experiences salvation. 
It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's not about being the best soldiers and the best warriors that we can be. It's not about how great you can fight. It's about how fast you can run to Jesus and say, save us, help us. And, and so uh, the Gibeonites, they go to, G, they go to Joshua uh, requesting this help. Notice verse number eight. And the Lord said unto Joshua, fear them not, speaking of this new uh, five-nation alliance led by King Adonizedek. Fear them not, for I deliver them into thine hand, and there shall not a man of them stand before thee. I love how God constantly encourages Joshua. Every time there's a new battle, he, he reestablishes this truth. Hey, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. You can move forward with courage. You are built to be brave when you rely on the power of the Lord. And this leads us to our second thought today. Number two is this. Uh, divine intervention does not negate human exertion. Now, bear with me as we unpack this, because I believe it's so important for us today as we walk uh, in our spiritual walk. Divine intervention does not negate human exertion. Notice verse number nine. And Joshua, therefore, came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. All night, Joshua and his warriors and the children of Israel Make this journey from Gilgal to Gibeon, 25 miles away, uphill. They're marching all night long. In verse number 8, God says, I'm going to fight for you. Do not be afraid. Uh, do not be dismayed. I'm going to fight and secure this battle. And in verse number 9, Joshua takes his army, and they march all night long. Why? Yes, God fights for us. But that divine intervention does not negate human exertion. God says, I'm going to secure for you the victory, Joshua, but you still have to do your part. See, the Bible talks about this in the New Testament. In James chapter 2, verse 17, it says this, Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man can say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and they tremble. See, faith without works is dead. And, and we can be so confident that God will fight for us, but that divine intervention does not negate human exertion. You say, well, what does this look like practically? It looks like this. If you are praying for a job, you better fill out an application. All right? If you are praying that God will give you a raise, you better show up on time for work and be the best employee that you can possibly be. Right? Because we can pray and trust God to do great things in our lives, but we have to do our part. Uh, the Bible says in Colossians 1.29, wherein to I also labor. Paul talked about this. He wasn't afraid to, to work. He wasn't afraid to labor in the ministry. He said, wherein to I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So Paul says, yes, I'm going to work. I'm going to strive. But it's ultimately God that's working in me, fighting for me. Now, notice verse number 10. Let's keep moving on our text today. Verse number 10. And the Lord discomfited, uh, that's another way of saying rerouted, them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah and unto uh, Makeda. And so what we see in this verse is a demonstration of how God is working in this scene. And I wanted to demonstrate this for us today. I remember when I was in school, uh, in my English class, learning to uh, diagram sentences. How many of you have ever diagrammed a sentence before in, in English class? Okay. How many of you are like, this brings up bad memories from English class? Okay. Well, bear with me for a moment. I'm going to do my best to give a simple diagram of verse number 10. Everybody doing okay today? 
Now, if I diagram this wrong, um, maybe you're an English teacher today and I do this wrong. That's okay. You can help me with it, but you have to come up here in front of the whole class and help me do this. Okay, so um, uh, this is verse number 10. And uh, when you diagram a sentence, it kind of helps you understand what uh, words uh, are doing and what the purpose that they're holding in, in the sentence is. And so uh, uh, we want to make sure we put the subject on the left side and the verbs on the right side. But when there's a compound verb, when there's multiple verbs, you get to do something fun in diagramming. You get to make a rocket ship. Okay, or or a sideways house if you had a boring teacher. Okay, so um, uh, there are four verbs in verse number ten, and I want you to keep your Bible open. I want you to help me uh, uh, locate what these verbs are. Okay, what's the first verb in chapter or verse number ten? Discomfited. How many of you use that word this week at all? Discomfited. Okay, nobody. Okay, so so this word means to reroute that God discomfited them. Okay, what's the second verb in verse number ten? Slew. He slew. What's the third verb? Chased. Chased. All right, there's about four of you that are looking. What's the fourth verb? Smote. Okay, very good. So these are the four verbs. Discomfited, rerouted, slew, chased, smote. Uh, This is describing the scene which was taking place. Those are the four verbs in the sentence, but there is only one subject in verse number 10. One subject that is linked to four verbs, and that subject is the Lord. And so what this verse is making very clear for us today is the one that was fighting for Israel and the one that secured the victory was not Joshua. It was not a military leader. It was not the children of Israel at large. The only person that secured the victory and brought the victory was the Lord God Almighty. And I'm thankful today when I'm discouraged and when I feel like, man, I don't have what it takes, I can trust in the name of the Lord. Because he fights for his people. And so this passage, passage is making it abundantly clear who secured the victory. It was the Lord. That's verse number 10. Aren't you thankful for that today? And, uh, and uh, the Bible says in Psalm 24, verse number 8, Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. That, that he is mighty in battle. Now, this was their exertion. They went up, they, they, they traveled all night long, uh, but the Lord stepped in and he was the one ultimately securing the victory. But then it says this in verse number 11. It says this, And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Haran, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with the hailstones than they with Uh, whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. And so what God does here to bring about this victory against these wicked uh, Canaanites that were attacking uh, God's people was he sent these uh, hailstones uh, to bring destruction for the enemy. And I was reading a couple years ago in Argentina, uh, there in, back in 2018, they had record-sized uh, hailstones, seven inches wide. I brought a picture for us today. And uh, uh, this, this was, these were hailstones in Argentina. A couple of years ago in Alabama, there were six-inch wide hailstones. And go to the next picture. This was a car that was destroyed in Alabama from hailstones, okay? And so you can kind of imagine the scene taking place when God's sending down uh, hailstones uh, to the Canaanites. But here's something that I want us to zero in on that I think is fascinating. It's interesting that those hailstones destroyed the Canaanites, but not the Israelites. Like, how does that work? How did that happen? That, that, that those hailstones were selective, that they were going down and only destroying certain people. Why? Because the people of God, the children of Israel, are you with me today? They were exempt from the judgment of God. That God was judging these wicked inhabitants of Canaan. But the children of Israel were exempt from God's judgment. I thought about that, and I thought, man, that's so encouraging. That's good news, because if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are exempt from the judgment of God. 
The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I'm so thankful today that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that we are exempt from the judgment of God, and we can have a home in heaven with Jesus forever and ever. The Bible puts it this way in John chapter 5, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he provides a way for us to experience the forgiveness of our sins so that we can have a clean slate, a new beginning, and a home in heaven with him. We can be exempt from God's judgment. And this leads us to our last thought today. Do you have time for one more principle this morning? Here's the last principle. The intensity of our faith should align with the immensity of our God. Now, that's kind of a longer way of saying this. If you believe in a big God, then you should have big faith. How many of you today believe that we have a big God? Anybody? then the size of our God should be proportionate to the size of our faith. The intensity of our faith should align with the immensity of our God. Uh, Peter talked about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Did you know that you can add to your faith? You can build your faith. You can increase your faith. You can strengthen your faith. Uh, great faith does not happen by accident. It happens by addition. You can add to your faith, strengthen your faith. And that's exactly what Joshua does here in the remainder of this chapter. He's going to add to his faith. He's going to build to his faith. Now, here's what's taking place in the narrative so far as we conclude today. Uh, God is bringing them a great victory. The hailstones are coming down. They are securing the victory over these five different nations that have coalesced against them. The only problem is they're running out of daylight. The only problem is they're running out of time. The sun is setting, the sun's going down, and Joshua knew if the sun sets and the sun goes away, uh, then we're not going to be able to secure a total victory in the night because people will just run away. We're not going to be able to find them. And so in order for us to get a complete victory, by the way, I like how Joshua was not content with a partial victory. He says we need a complete victory, and the only way that we can get a complete victory is if we have more time. And so what he does is he prays one of the most audacious and bold prayers in all of Scripture. In fact, this prayer is so convicting when it comes to our prayers, because often we can pray in such a small manner. And here Joshua shows that he has great faith and that he is increasing his faith. And so I want us to see this prayer as we close, and I want to dissect a few different components to this prayer. First, Joshua prayed boldly. This was a bold prayer. Notice it in verse number 12. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. Talk about a big request. Talk about a pretty, can you imagine just saying that at a small group next time during prayer, prayer time? Like, I'd like the sun to stand still. And uh, that's a pretty big ask. That, that, that Joshua is giving here. Uh, Lord, would you make the sun stand? This was not a generic prayer. This was a specific prayer. He could have just said, Lord, would you give us the victory? That would have been generic. But he says, Lord, would you make the sun stand still? This was a very specific request. This was a big, bold request that honored his God. See, one time uh, there was a lowly servant that came to Alexander the Great, and he asked a very big and massive request from Alexander the Great. And to everyone's surprise, Alexander the Great immediately granted this lowly servant this massive request. And everyone said, why did you grant him this massive request? And he said, the size of the request honored me. I wonder when it comes to the size of our request to a big God, do they honor him? 
See, Joshua here is praying a big, bold prayer, and this is what I believe with all my heart, that the people of God and followers of Jesus at Rock Hill Church at the 1130 service ought to believe God for greater things in their lives. I believe that we ought to pray that God will provide for us a building that we can call home for our church family. I believe that we ought to pray revival to break out in Rancho Cucamonga. I believe we ought to pray God for bigger and greater things because he is abundantly uh, able to do abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. And so Joshua, he prayed this bold prayer. Would you make the sun stand still? But then in verse number 12, it says this in the middle of the verse, in the sight of all Israel, in the sight of Israel. And so not only did he pray boldly, he prayed publicly. Now, uh, I believe that we can pray privately. We should. I believe that we can pray publicly. And uh, Joshua here, he prays this prayer in the sight of all Israel, which tells us that he was unashamed of his faith. It wasn't like Joshua was like, you know what, we need something. And so Joshua went into his tent uh, there and, uh, at Gibeon, and he closed the tent and zipped it up to him so nobody could hear. And he said, Lord, would you make the sun stand still? That's not what happened. That the Bible says that Joshua did this in the sight of all Israel, that he was unashamed of his faith. Now, I believe uh, today that in the New Testament, Jesus condemns, you know, praying a showy prayer or a hypocritical prayer, that we're not just trying to get attention. But I do believe this, that when it comes to our faith, we ought to be unashamed, uh, that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, we live in a world and in a culture where a culture that's drifting further and further from the truth of God's word. Have you noticed that the culture is not ashamed for what they believe? Uh, the culture is not afraid to stand up for that which they are passionate about. But so often the church is silent and the church stays quiet when the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, that we ought to speak up for that which we believe, that we ought to stand firm in the truth of God's word, that we're not trying to beat people up, that we're not trying to bash people over the head, uh, that we're not trying to be mean, but that we are speaking the truth in love, uh, that we ought to communicate that which we believe. This was a bold prayer. It was a public prayer. But then I want you to see, thirdly, it was a unique prayer. It was unique. Uh, notice verse number 13. And the sun stood still. God answered his request. And the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Now, you can read books and commentaries on this, and you will find so many different explanations and rationalizations for what took place here. Many commentators will say, you know, this, this didn't really happen. This was kind of like a poetic verbiage. Uh, is not this written in the book of Jasher? The book of Jasher was kind of a poetic book, and, and uh, this didn't really happen this way. But there are some things that God does that we just have to realize cannot be explained away by naturalistic explanations. That if we believe Genesis 1-1... And we believe in an all-powerful creator God, then certainly he has rule over his creation. See, C.S. Lewis said this, the mind which asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind in process of relapsing from Christianity into mere religion. <laughs> I don't want to worship a God that can't make the sun stand still. Uh, he is before all things. By him, all things consist. He has the power over his creation, and he is a supernatural God. And so uh, Joshua prays to his God, would you make the sun stand still? And the sun stood still. Now, this is not even why I am saying that this was a unique prayer. Everybody still with me today? It was not just unique because of the faith involved. It was not just unique because of the miracle involved. Here's why I believe this was a unique prayer. Because Joshua did not ask God to take away the problem. Did you notice that? 
he asked God for more time so that he could continue to fight and be used for God's glory. This is often not how we pray. We pray, Lord, take away my problems. God, this hurts. Please remove it from me. See, often when it comes to a trial, we want God to do a removing job, but God wants to do an improving job. And we just say, God, would you just take this away from me? But that's not what Joshua prayed. He said, Lord, would you make the sun stand still? God, we just need more time. We'll we'll keep on fighting. We'll keep on moving forward in your plan. We just need the sun to stand still. See, we want God to erase our problems, but God wants to empower his people. And there is a difference between asking God for victory and asking God to use us to secure the victory. Joshua says, I want to be used in your plan. God, would you use me for your glory? Would you make the sun stand still so that we can continue fighting? And it says this in verse 14. And there was no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. By the way, aren't you so thankful today that God hears and answers our prayers? That that he hearkened unto the voice of a man, that he heard Joshua's prayer, for the Lord fought for Israel. They had faith, but God was fighting. The Lord fought for Israel. Now, maybe today, this morning, you feel as though you're running out of daylight like Joshua. Maybe you feel like you're running out of energy, you're running out of time, you're running low on faith. And I believe today that we can stretch and increase our faith and say, Lord, we're gonna trust you each and every step of the way. I wanna close with this verse in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, this is the scene where Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus and they say, Lazarus uh, is sick. I don't even remember this story. We sang about it this morning, uh, a few songs ago. And uh, Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. Mary and Martha, they loved Jesus. The Bible says that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. That meant that when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, he didn't have a specific home that he went and lived in. He would often travel and stay with friends. And some of those friends that he stayed with often were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so Lazarus is sick, and Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, uh, they say, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. We need you to come and heal Lazarus. Please, Jesus. Martha, they were pleading with Jesus. They send word, please come and heal Lazarus. And you know what Jesus did? The very next verse says that Jesus abode still in that place for two days. They said, Jesus, we need your help. Please come and heal Lazarus. And what Jesus does, he says, okay. I'm going to hang out here for a couple days. And this would have been so confusing and exasperating for Mary and Martha. Jesus, why wouldn't you come? We know that you love Lazarus. This doesn't make any sense. We, we know that you have the power to heal. Why would you stay still for two days? And then while they're waiting and while they're confused, the worst possible thing happens. Lazarus dies. And now Mary and Martha are even more confused. Why would Jesus not come? We know that he loves us. Jesus eventually made his way. He eventually went. In John chapter 11, this is where we pick up the narrative. It says this in verse number 21. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if, everybody say if, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. If you would have been here, almost accusatory in nature, if you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. But then I love this next phrase, and this is what I want us to zero in on. But then she says this, but I know Watch these three words. That even now, that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. She says, even now that Lazarus is gone, even now that I'm at the lowest moment of my life, 
Even now when I'm running out of daylight, even now when I'm hurting more than I've ever hurt in my life, even now I believe that you are still in control, even now I believe that you are still powerful, even now I believe that you are still the king, even now I believe that you are sovereign. What we need today is an even now kind of faith. That even when it doesn't make sense, even when we can't piece it all together, even in those moments we're trusting that God is still good and that he's still in control. When we're running out of daylight and we feel like, man, I don't have enough time. I don't know how we're going to get the victory and I don't know how this is all going to work out. Even now, God is in control. Now, today I believe that we need to have the faith to let God fight, to trust him each and every step of the way. But maybe today you are like the Gibeons, uh, the Gibeonites that were in desperate need of salvation. And I want to read a verse in John chapter 20, verse number 31. This would be the last verse that I read. And as I read it, uh, would you join me in standing this morning as we close? John chapter 20, verse number 31. It says this, but these are written. I love that John kind of gives a purpose statement for his gospel. He says, these are written that you might believe, that you would have faith, that you would trust, uh, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, uh, the, the Christ that was a title for the coming Messiah. He was saying, uh, this is written that you might believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Can I remind you today that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a good prophet. Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And so he says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And this is the good news of salvation. This is the good news of the gospel. That just like those Gibeonites, they knew that they were heading for destruction and they ran to Joshua and they said, save us. Today, if you're in the room or you're watching online and you don't know Jesus as your savior, if you're wondering about eternity, heaven, hell, I'm not really sure. I believe today that you can place your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone and you can be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you've never done that, today can be the day of salvation for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.